So we have been in this conversation. We're actually going to wrap it up next week. Um, looking at the idea of having a daring faith. The, the big question that we've been, we've been uh, looking at over the whole period that we've been having this conversation is, what if God is already doing everything in your life that you expect him to? What if God is already doing everything in your life that you expect him to? Well, if God's doing all kinds of great things, that's great. You can leave. I have nothing to say to you. But if you're like me, if God is not doing that much in your life, if you look at your life and you say, you know what, there's just not that much in the way of a of a everyday presence of God, a reminder to me every day of the things that God is doing. God is not uh, surprising me daily with new things that I wasn't expecting um, uh, God to do or, or that, that I was expecting God to do, then... This conversation is for you. So we've been talking about um, that, that the thing that enables God to do that is faith, that, that when we have a great, big, daring faith, that actually gives God a place to operate. Uh, Jesus, when he was walking the earth, he was surprised by two things. He was surprised by people who had no faith and people who had great faith. And what we learned is that uh, when, when, people, when, when Jesus was dealing with people who had heard about him, but who didn't believe he could do anything for them, that's exactly what they got. They, they got exactly what they expected. Jesus wasn't able to do any miracles in places where people had no faith in him. But in other cases, people who had great expectations of Jesus, Jesus was able to do things for them. And so what we've learned is that faith is the, is the thing that spans the gap between our current circumstances, where we are right now, and the hope that we have, the hope that we have from God. And if you've got a very small faith, if you've got, you know, a small faith, there's just really not much uh, room in there for God to operate. But if we have a big faith, that's a place where God can actually, can, can fit in and, and get his hands dirty operating in our life. So that's what we've been learning. Hope, faith is the thing that spans the gap, bridges the gap between here and hope. And so we've been saying, well, how can I, how can I make that bigger? How can I have a bigger, bolder, more daring faith? And that's the question we've been looking at. And what we've been learning as we've looked at it is that there's a couple of things we can do. The first thing we can do is we can wait for God last. That if, if we, uh, if we have prayed and God has not told us one way or the other that, that, that God has not told us that that's right or wrong, we should assume that, that the thing that, that is on our hearts is from God and that we should act accordingly. And, and besides, we know there's all kinds of things that we don't have to pray to God about. We don't have to pray to God about being generous or kind or merciful because we already know what God's will is. We don't have to say, oh, gee, God, you know, there's this person in my life. I don't know if I should be generous to them because we know that God wants us to be generous people. God's already spoken about that. So we wait for God last. We proceed on the conviction that God is calling us to do something. And then when we have done everything we can do, then we wait for God to act. So we wait for God last. Another thing we've learned is that when we add a zero, that actually magnifies Jesus. That if we only bring small requests to God, that's not a compliment. What that says is, look, God, I trust you to get me a parking spot, but I'm afraid to put my trust in anything that's really important. Because I'm afraid you're just going to let me down. That it's actually a compliment to God when we bring big requests to God. So we've talked about how adding a zero actually magnifies zero. When we be, when it magnifies Jesus, when we bring big requests to Jesus, that magnifies Him. 
So the last thing we learned last week is that we need to depend on it. If you put those two things together, if you put the idea of taking initiative together with big things, the things that we care about, the things that are on our heart, that we want to act on, together with big things, what that leads us to is the idea that we need to depend on it. You know, sometimes our prayers are things we really don't care about, right? You know, um, I, I can pray for a parking spot, but I really don't care if I get one or not. You know, my heart's not in it. It's nothing that I'm counting on God to, to come through with. Sometimes I can pray for really big things, right? I can pray for world peace or, or um, an end to cancer. But unless I know somebody who's going to war or somebody who's facing cancer, I... It's just not that big of a deal to me. You know, God can use his own time and it's like I'm not impatient or anything like that because, you know, I've prayed. But when we really count on it, when it's like Peter stepping out of the boat, I am counting on God to hold me up now or to catch me when I fall. That's when we can have daring faith. That's when our faith grows. Because what we're looking for is a big, bold, daring faith. And that brings us to today's lesson, which maybe is the hardest lesson of all, um, but it's easy to remember if you grew up listening to Journey songs in the 80s. It's don't stop believing. It's hard to do this. It's hard to do this for a lot of reasons. Because if you're the kind of person who does take initiative, if you're the kind of person who says, who says, you know what, I believe God wants me to bring my friend to Jesus because Jesus can cure him. If you're the kind of person who is ready to act, then it's very hard to know when to quit acting, right? It's very hard to know uh, how long you've waited, uh, when you've waited long enough. And so you, you're always tempted to take things back. But if, if you're like the, the people we heard about who brought their friend to Jesus, and maybe only one of them had initiative and the others just kind of went along with the group, if you're like that, if you're the kind of person who will do the good thing but didn't think of it yourself or maybe didn't think that this is the right time, but your group persuaded you, if you're like that, this is still a problem because everybody is impatient. If it's something that's really big and really important to you, then you're going to be impatient. You're going to be saying, what's taking God so long? We see this all through the scriptures. The, the people of God are perpetually calling out to God, how long, O oh Lord? We're all impatient. But the thing that's hard to do is to say, God will take care of this in his own time. God will take care of this at the right time. It's very hard to do that. But that's the kind of faith we want to have. The kind of faith we see in the early church. People like Paul and Barnabas model it. They are preaching in a, in a city in Europe and they are arrested by the authorities. They are stripped of their clothing. They're beaten with rods. Rods like uh, almost as thick as a, uh, a broomstick, about the size of your thumb. Strong men beat them with these rods. And then they throw him in a dungeon. And what do they do? Do they say, how long, O Lord? They sing songs because they are convicted that God knows what's going on and God will act at the right time. That's the kind of faith we want to have. But look, I don't know what you think about my preaching, but I'm pretty confident I'm not going to convince any of you that that's what you want to do, is go out of here, get arrested, beaten with rods and thrown in a dungeon. So I'm not even going to try, right? I believe the Holy Spirit uh, works through my speech, uh, through, through the things I have to say. But I don't, um, 
want to overburden the Holy Spirit today. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about a much more palatable lesson, a time when the people of God were faced with a challenge, and the question was, would they stop believing? And so what I want to do is I want to look at a lesson from the book of Joshua. Joshua, as you remember, was the successor of Moses. Moses had led the people of God out of bondage in Egypt. They had been slaves in Egypt, and then God said to Moses, go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Moses did that. Moses brought them out of Egypt and led them on dry land through the Red Sea. And that had happened about 40 years earlier, before our story. And then just a couple of chapters ago, Joshua, who is now leading the people, Moses has died, Joshua has taken his place, Joshua leads them not through the Red Sea, but through the Jordan River in a way that is kind of like what had happened to their parents' generation. The Jordan River actually divided, and they were able to walk across the Jordan River bed on dry land. But there's one, there's really two differences. Uh, The first difference is, in the case of the Red Sea, the enemy was behind them, chasing them. And it's a lot easier to go through the Red Sea when you're being chased by Pharaoh and his chariots. That's a pretty easy decision to make. Um, But in the case of the Jordan River, in the case of Joshua, the enemy's in front of them. When they cross through this river, they're going to be committed because the river's going to fill back up again, and then you're trapped between the enemy and the river. So that's one difference. The other difference is that this enemy has heard what happened at the Jordan River. They heard that the river split up. And so they say, these guys have got some really powerful God that they're operating with. Tell you what, let's just not fight them. Let's pick the right opportunity to fight them. And so what they do is instead of coming out to meet them in battle, they say, let's go hole up in Jericho. So they do that. It says Jericho, we read that Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the Israelites. They heard what God has done with the Jordan River, and they say, I don't want any part of this battle, or at least not on these terms. Let's just wait them out. So they go into their fortified city, the city of Jericho, and they wait. And that's a problem. So what do you do? You can't go back into the wilderness. The river's closed up behind you. You can't go forward because if you move into the promised land, the people from Jericho can come out when it's convenient. You know, you're asleep, whatever it is, you're, you're, you're busy farming, whatever you're trying to do. They can come out, they can harass you and then go back into their fortified city. So you've got to deal with this problem. What do you do? And that is really our first lesson. The first lesson is if we can see the problem, if we look at our situation and we see a problem, So did God. God saw this before Joshua saw it. God saw it before anybody saw it. God saw it hundreds, thousands, millions of years beforehand. And God has been waiting for the right moment to solve this problem. Think about that. You know, I get impatient about 10 seconds after I give a problem to God. But stop and think about that. The the thing that is worrying me, the thing that I really need God to, to operate in, a place where I need to see God act. God saw it millions of years ago and has been waiting for the perfect opportunity to do something that brings glory to his name. So the first lesson is if you see trouble, so did God. So he says to, uh, the Lord says to Joshua, see, I've handed Jericho over to you. All right, done. 
And we don't know what Joshua says, but my guess is he looked a little puzzled then because he looks, you know, there's Jericho, still got walls, still got soldiers up on the top of the walls. Doesn't look very solved problem to me. God says, I have handed them over to you. They're done. But then God goes on and, and, you know, kind of has mercy on Joshua and says, here, let me explain. He says, you shall march around the city, all the warriors circling the city once. Thus you shall do for six days with seven priests bearing seven trumpets of rams and so forth. This very complicated set of instructions. Basically, they're to go around in circles for six days. Just go around in circles for six days and then go around in circles a lot on the seventh day and the walls will fall down. And, you know, Joshua has to be wondering how, why, what about walking around? You know, this sounds like some kind of a magical incantation. You know, should I go, should I go right, you know, uh, what is it, uh, uh, clockwise or, or counterclockwise? It doesn't say maybe I should alternate, right? It just sounds like some weird little uh, uh, magical incantation. Do this thing. What is the purpose of this? It doesn't even make sense. He says, uh, seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. This is the shofar. It's a, it's a ram's horn. You might have seen some movie where the Viking blows the horn or something like that. It's not really a musical instrument. You don't, you don't play a tune on this. What you do is you send a signal. You know, it's like charge or retreat or, you know, uh, rally around the flag or whatever it is you say. It's not a musical instrument. Basically, you sound military signals on this continually as you walk all around the city, but you don't do anything. So you say charge, but you don't charge. You say retreat, but you don't retreat. What What is he talking about? This doesn't make any sense. It just says, keep blowing the trumpets the whole time you walk around the city. There's something else, right? It says walk around the city once the first day, and then a second time the second day, and so forth. You walk around the city, but then you go back to camp, and you just sit there. How does that make any sense? You know, archaeologists don't know how big Jericho was. I, I did some reading this week, so, you know, good, good me. Um, I, I read up on Jericho, and it's amazing how much we know about Jericho and how little we know about Jericho. The, Jericho is probably the oldest civilization, the, the oldest um, uh, place that civilization has existed in the world. It goes back at least to 7,000 BC and maybe as far back as 10,000 BC. So if you think pyramids and, you know, Egypt, things like that, multiply by four, right? I mean, we're talking an incredibly long time people have been in Jericho. There have been at least 22 Jerichos. So uh, periodically they lose a battle, it's destroyed, and then a hundred years later somebody says, hey, let's have a Jericho here. So over and over and over again, people have been building Jerichos. So we don't know how big this is. There's archaeologists who will argue over it. We don't know how big this is. Let's say, let's say it's a hundred acres, uh, 150 acres, you know, a quarter mile on a side. So picture this. You get up, you get everybody lined up, you know, everybody's got their swords and their shields. They're all ready for battle. And you line them up, you put the ark here and you put some people in front, some people. You do exactly like the instructions say. You walk around the city. Okay. So you walk maybe, a couple of miles, right? You're marching around, blowing your horns, but not attacking. And then you go back and you sit down. You do that the first day. But the last day, you go seven times around it. So maybe you might do, you might go for a 15-mile hike, and then you attack? 
wouldn't it make more sense to do the seven up front and then you sit back and rest? And then on the last day, you just kind of do once just to kind of warm up, get the muscles all working, and then you attack, right? I mean, it doesn't, there's nothing about this that makes sense. And that's because it doesn't do anything. It doesn't have any effect. You know, we listen to this and we think of it as, okay, here's the instructions. Here's how you bring walls down, right? You go around the city seven times, walls come down. We think of it like a formula, but this is an ineffectual formula. The purpose of this is not to bring the walls down. So our second, our second learning is ineffectual, without effect, some, some activity that is without effect and ineffectual action is not necessarily useless. The dictionary tells you that. But this is an ineffectual action. They can walk around that city forever and the walls are never going to come down. Because walking around the city doesn't bring the walls down. What it does is it operates on the Israelites. It gives them six or seven days to walk around that city, to look at it from every angle, to see how high those walls are, to see how many soldiers are up on the top of those walls, and realize if it comes down to us, we've lost. We cannot possibly win against Jericho. And it gives them six days to think that over and to let that sink into their bones. And then they go back to their camp at night and they just mull on that. See, what they're doing is ineffectual, but it's not useless. The other thing is, so much of these activities, they, they're really kind of an empty ritual. You know, we have, we have this idea that we don't want to have empty rituals. You know, we want... We want to be, you know, we're very pragmatic. You know, if it doesn't have an effect, I don't want to do it. But empty rituals aren't necessarily empty. Time-wasting rituals aren't necessarily wasting time. If you spend seven days thinking about how this is not up to you, but up to God, then that time has not been wasted. I mean, God could have knocked the walls down on day one. But God spent that time doing something important teaching you that it's up to God to knock the walls down. So time-wasting rituals aren't. And that brings us to kind of summing it up. You know, don't, don't stop believing is one way, and now next time you hear it in the car, you'll think about Jericho. But the answer for us is that waiting is hard. And so don't work harder. Don't grab it back from God. But instead, wait harder. And use these lessons to do so. You know, if you think about these rituals, these are basically very early and very primitive spiritual disciplines. But we're all called to be people with spiritual disciplines. Daily prayer. I was just talking to a woman this weekend who has a daily ritual. She gets into the pool and she swims to the far end of the pool and she prays the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. She prays this great prayer of the Jewish people all the way from one end of the pool to the back, uh, and back, and that takes her exactly one lap. And so she says, I have a ritual. Every day I pray the Shema 45 minutes um, worth of prayer because that's how long I pray. I know a pastor, his watch, he's got a watch that beeps every day at 10.02. And the reason it beeps at 10.02 is it reminds him at 10.02 every day to do what Jesus tells us to do in Luke 
chapter 10, verse 2. Luke says, or Jesus says in Luke, he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send workers into his field. And as a pastor, he says, that's what I see. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The opportunity is right there. And so every day he reminds himself with this ritual to pray to the Lord of the harvest. Could he do it at a different time? Certainly. There's nothing magical about 1002. Could he do it six times on Saturday and and not at all during the week? Yes, he could. But he has a ritual that he goes through that is empty, except it's not for him. The uh, founder of Methodism, John Wesley, he learned a lot about spiritual disciplines from his mother, um, uh, so much that his detractors called him a Methodist, and that's where we get the name of Methodism, that he had all these disciplines that he engaged in, and many of them he learned from his mother, Susanna. Susanna was a busy woman. She had 19 kids, and 10 of them lived to adulthood because that's what things were like in those days. She had 10 kids running around underfoot at least, and she prayed two hours every day. So she's a hero, obviously, that can't be done. But she had a, she had a method. She had a ritual. What she would do to tell her kids, I need some prayer time, is she would put her apron up over her head. And that was her ritual. Did it make her prayers somehow more appealing to God? Did it do anything? No, it was a ritual that worked on her, the way this ritual works on the people of Israel outside of Jericho. What are your rituals? If you're counting on God to do something, if you really need God to come through, rituals may be what you need so that you can keep on believing. Maybe ritual is what will actually keep you from grabbing things back from God or just wiping your hands and saying, it's not my problem. I give up. I don't care. What are your rituals? We want a daring faith. We want to give God opportunities and ways to be active in our lives. And so we want to open up space. And the way we need to do that is to, is to take action, to commit ourselves, to inspire the people around us because we are committed to big things, grand things that bring glory to God. But then we need to give God room to work. We need to give him time to work, knowing that God has the right timing. God has seen our problems long before. God is waiting for the perfect moment, and we should wait too. So have rituals. Have daily prayer time, weekly prayer time. Have an apron. Walk around your Jericho. I know people who mentally walk around a school, because if they walk around the school, then the administrators will say, stop doing that, you're making us nervous, we think you're a predator. So since they can't walk around the, the, the school... They mentally walk around the school and they pray for all the teachers and all the students in the school. And that walking thing, that's a meaningless ritual except to them. For them, it makes their prayer more real. So have a ritual and don't stop believing. Let's pray. Loving God, we give you thanks that, that you are a God who answers prayer. And we pray, Lord, that you would, you would give us the courage to open up spaces in our lives, to, to start expecting greater things from you, to have a richer and deeper and bolder faith, to look to you with confidence, to take big problems to you, to take initiative, and then, Lord, to wait. And we pray, Lord, you'd help us to, 
to use rituals to find ways that, that we can stay focused on our problems and continually remember that they are worth solving, but they are beyond our capacity. So we pray you'd help us to use the disciplines, the rituals, not because they're empty or because they're magic formulas, but because they remember, they remind us who and only who can solve the problems we bring to you. We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.